Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the eighth and final class of the shaping of Middle Earth. Um, uh, how do you like my new wallpaper? Pretty awesome, huh? Um, as you can see, I'm not at home this evening, uh, not being surrounded by my normal uh, uh, Signum Halo. Um, I am on the road this week, so I hope all shall go well. I had a few internet problems earlier today, um, but once it returned, the internet was excellent, actually. So I'm hoping that we're um, all good on that. Anyhow, so um, also my family's sleeping uh, through a relatively thin wall, uh, so I hope you'll be able to hear me tonight. I'm going to try not to shout uh, very, very loudly. Um, anyway, so here we are. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna give this a shot. Um, so, okay. So first thing, let me clarify that <laughs> the Dracula page is still not up yet, and it's utterly and completely my fault. Um, I want to start the Dracula class the week after next. We're going to skip one week and then start the Dracula class the week after that. And I promise I will have the stuff up very soon. It's completely my fault. Um, I've, I've been on the road and uh, I, well, I'm still on the road. But anyway, I, that's my only lame excuse. Um, so um, uh, anyway, but I promise, I promise it's going to be up very soon. Um, but, but, but yeah, as far as timing goes, uh, we'll skip next week and then start the week after that, I think is, uh, I think is the plan. Okay. Um, so I look forward to, uh, talking about that with you. So two weeks from tonight, uh, you know, you, me, Jonathan Harker, Transylvania, uh, it'll be, it'll be fun. So, okay. But tonight, I want to talk about your questions and finish up, sort of reflect back on and think about uh, our um, uh, our time with the shaping of Middle Earth here. Now that we have this leisurely class for reflection, you know. Um, oh, by the way, so also this table I'm using is kind of unstable. So if you know you see this head, it doesn't mean there's an earthquake. We're fine. It just means I've leaned on the table. Um, and <laughs> okay, 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 okay. Um, so, uh, like I said, we, we have this luxurious class to uh, address some questions, and you guys sent some really awesome questions. I couldn't include all of them, uh, and I hope to get through uh, all the ones that I prepared here for tonight. But if you do have another question, or if uh, you really want me to talk about something that I didn't include, anyway, feel free to go ahead and include that in your questions. Uh, you know, Obviously, those of you who are here live tonight, um, uh, the best way you can do that, just so that I can distinguish that from the rest of the things, if you would start the comment that you type with the word topic in capital letters, so capital topic, colon, and then type, you know, that way it's easier for me to scan through everybody's comments and pick out the ones which are introducing a potential new, uh, to rather than commenting on the topic that we're in the midst of discussion, discussing, see what I mean? So uh, anyway. Do feel free to interject new com new comments or new topics uh, if as they occur to you. Let's start. I thought Karita uh, gave us a really great starting point, and this is something that I think is really important to acknowledge. Um, you know, this is now the end of our fourth class. You know, we've now discussed our way through the first four volumes of the History of Middle Earth series, and of course, I've been emphasizing how much fun this has been and how much I've learned, and it's been awesome. And I still think all those things, but of course. Uh, 
it's important to acknowledge the history of Middle Earth is not the most readable thing ever written, right? I mean, it's it's uh, it's not exactly something that a lot of people enjoy. So, Karita, I really appreciate your drawing our attention uh, to this and raising this as an explicit issue. Um, Karita asks, what advice would you have for a person who enjoys Tolkien and has made it through the Silmarillion with moderate success, but finds the histories more difficult to engage with? There are so many details and edits along the way, and it isn't the easiest thing in the world to retain it all. Um, uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, um, uh, the fact is, Although I think, I mean, I, obviously I think there's so much really, really fascinating stuff and they're so well worth reading and you learn so many things. It's not easy, right? And one of the things... Okay, now look here, I'm about to start being critical of Christopher Tolkien right again, like two classes in a row, but I don't really mean this as critical. Christopher Tolkien does a great job, but I think it's perfectly sort of normal... Uh, like basically his interests are not everybody's interest like obviously for to, to cite an obvious example uh Christopher Tolkien is enormously interested in the changes of the names over time right he devotes an enormous amount uh of his commentary to sort of tracking what seem to many lay people really kind of insignificant changes you know like the difference between Eldarest with an O and Eldarest with an A, right? And I personally think that you could be forgiven if you're reading this and saying like, "Who cares? Like it doesn't matter," um, you know. And and but it's distracting, right? I mean, if you're really trying to be meticulous and read the thing through cover to cover, as these classes have been, you know, kind of intrinsically or uh, implicitly inviting you to do, um, uh, even intrinsically pressuring you to do uh it's it's hard i mean it can be really hard to, to stay focused and to uh, basically be able to be in a, in a in a in a mental place where you can collect the really cool nuggets as they come up in the story so I, i'm totally in sympathy with that um and of course you know so like with the names for just to talk about that for a second um i, I think there are two things here that in my mind kind of emerge just thinking thinking not about the patterns in the stories and the development of the stories themselves, but thinking kind of one step further up for a second, having now read and discussed our way through four volumes of the History of Middle-Earth series. So here I'm thinking about the pattern and development of Christopher's commentary throughout these four volumes. Two things seem to me to emerge uh, that I notice in his discussion of the names that, to me, make it really understandable. One is... Knowing he is, uh, you know, really interested and invested in the languages. And of course, um, any of you who are listening to this, uh, like, uh, you know, people, people like Andrew Higgins, uh, who's teaching the Invented Languages class now, and people who are really excited about that class, um, will probably not will probably be perfectly fine with it, right? I mean, if you're really interested in the development of Tolkien's languages, you're probably like, what are you talking about? It doesn't matter. The difference between Eldorest and Eldorest is a, is a remarkable difference, right? It, it, it tells us a lot about the development of his languages at that time. Of course it does. Yeah, absolutely it does. Um, and uh, And I get that, and that's fine, and I totally respect that, and that is absolutely cool. And I respect Christopher for being interested in that. 
But the fact is, most people aren't. I'm sorry. Most people aren't, right? Um, and therefore, we, you know, those of us, and, and I, I mean, I'm interested in the languages, but I'm, a, I'm very amateur. I, I, I am not, I am not in any way an expert on Tolkien's languages. There's so much I don't know about Tolkien's languages. And it certainly is not the thing that I am primarily interested in when I'm, when I'm looking through this. Um, I'm really interested in the story and the development of the ideas and the stories and, and not just the individual stories themselves, but kind of the, the whole big picture that we've been talking about a lot in this class. Those are the things that I find really, uh, really fascinating when I read through this. And I do find the fine details of, you know, vowel shifts in the way that, uh, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, that this, like, you know, that these languages are being represented at this time. Not something that really grabs me here, though I know it does many people. So that's one thing. One thing is that when I'm reading through Christopher's commentaries, I'm often kind of filing away some of the stuff that he uh, is talking about as language stuff, right? Um, things that are of that will be of fantastic interest if you are studying his languages, but aren't going to really impact a, you know a reader who's not interested in that. The other thing is that it's very clear when you look at um, his discussion of the chronology of texts. Of course, I can only imagine what it would be like to sit down with the box of manuscripts, okay? All these different fragments and sheets and, and, and you know, even just from the descriptions that he's given, right, of, of uh, you know, these, these scraps that are written on the back of exam papers and, and, and then edited three or, like, with three or four layers of editing, right? So there's the, there's the text that's written and then there's the text that he wrote over top of it in pen, over pencil, so that you can no longer even read what was originally there. And then he crossed it out and wrote something in a different color of ink uh, at a different time, but you don't know when. And you can't even tell for sure which layer of edits come before which other ones, right? When they're like multiple marginal notes in different colors. Um, I mean, you know, the, the, the complexity of trying to sort all that stuff out is very, very difficult. So you think of all of the things that he has said, you know, that we have paid some attention to as we've been looking at kind of the way that these texts in this book uh, have developed. We have been interested in the chronology and thinking about how those fit together in the big picture. Um, so we've been really relying on Christopher's analysis there. And his analysis, in turn, relies a lot on names and the changes of names. If you, re if you recall... That's one of the, that's the primary thing that he points to that he really hangs his hat on as a way to give like as as a piece of objective indication of when this text was written right so that you know that if if uh, if one text has you know a name spelled one way crossed out with a name spelled a new way above it and then the uh, and then another text or another draft or another comment has that same thing written originally, right, as part of the text. You know, it, remember we were talking about this when we were talking about the Annals of Beleriand versus the Annals of Valinor and the, and the Quinta, right? Um, you know, if it appears in the flow of the original text, then that pretty well proves that um, that that other text that has it written in originally must be later than the one where it was only penciled in the margin, right? So you can see how he really, Christopher, in the vast and complex work that he has done in trying to make sense of, of these texts, of, of this raw jumble of texts. Um, I mean, heck, I, I said taking this box of manuscripts, goodness, the work 
involved in dividing the bunches of manuscript into boxes was Christopher's work in the first place, right? He, he doesn't just start with putting a puzzle together. It's like he starts with four large jigsaw puzzles all jumbled up together, right? And first he has to sort out which pieces belong to which puzzle before he can even figure out how they go together. So, um, I mean, the... Uh, you know, I certainly, I don't want to slight the work that he, the work that he's done, and it would seem churlish uh, to sort of complain about you know his talking about the stuff that enabled him to do that work. If you see what I mean, but <laughs> at the end of the day, it doesn't change the fact that I suspect that most people who read the history of Middle Earth and its commentaries are not specially interested again it doesn't really impact us very much to think like the you know the change from flinding to gwindor is a little interesting right but it's not it's it's not like revolutionary right it doesn't it doesn't um christopher gets all excited about it and for understandable reasons it's really important to him right and there are good reasons why it's uh, um why it's important to him but it's just when we're interested in the story and the development of the story, it seems like a kind of a minor thing. So, so this is Carita, This is one um, sort of thing to an, and this is all not even really answering your question, but re, uh, or maybe I guess in a really backdoor way, perhaps doing that a little bit. Um, primarily, however, I'm kind of acknowledging what you're saying. Right, that it can be really, it is easy to get bogged down in details, which perhaps you don't find all that interesting. That leads me, therefore, to the first piece of advice that I would give in sort of how to approach the histories or how to manage, how to manage any impatience or boredom you might feel. Now, I'm not saying you'll definitely feel some. Not everybody does. Again, you know, there'll be some people, I'm sure there are some of you, who find all of the details that he gives just absolutely entrancing. That's cool. You know, more power to you. That's fantastic. But if you don't, my primary advice is don't feel guilty about skipping that stuff. You know, it's okay to skim. You don't have to... I mean, it's kind of like the advice that I've always given about the Silmarillion, right? The, 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 if you're a new reader, you know, a relatively new reader to Tolkien, or certainly if you're a new reader to the Silmarillion, the f- main thing that I say is don't, don't worry about the names. Don't try to memorize everything. Don't, don't make flowcharts. Um, if you can't remember the difference between a Lyquendi and a Caliquendi, like, don't, don't worry. Don't worry. Just, just let it go. Just let it go. It doesn't matter. Um, follow the story, right? Just, just, just allow yourself to follow the big picture of the story, and don't let yourself get bogged down in the details. Like there's going to be a test later. Okay, you you can get that later on. The Silmarillion will reward you again and again as you go back and read, and you you notice these things, and you and you begin to you know these names begin to kind of click together, and, and and you begin to get all this a little bit better. But that's you know a second, third, fourth reading thing. On your first reading, don't worry about it so much. I would say the same about the history of Middle-earth, but I'd say it even more emphatically, right? Um, feel free to skim... Don't skip Christopher's commentary entirely because there's some really important things in there. And especially, as I've mentioned many times, when he's doing his sort of overall survey of how this, you know, uh, compares, right? When he's doing his comparison and contrast with, like, Book of Lost Tales and the Quinta and the published Silmarillion, I mean, that's absolutely... Um, um, 
that's absolutely. Uh, 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 I, I, well, okay, I was about to say it's absolutely necessary. Even that's not absolutely necessary, but I do think it's important if you're going to get much of anything at all out of this to be able to see how the thing is developing, right? If you want to have some kind of a sense of that kind of meta narrative, right? Not just the story itself, but how the story is developing. It's re- and and it's so convenient, right? Rather than having to go back and look it up in the published Silmarillion to contrast, um, he will draw your attention to things that you had forgotten about. I mean, I don't know. This probably has happened to you too. But even I have this. I mean, I know the Silmarillion, the published Silmarillion, pretty well. But I still have the experience when reading this, where I'll read a passage in the Quinta, and I'll be like, "Wow, that sounds exactly like the passage in the published." Silmarillion. So why wow, he's really almost arrived there. And then I get to Christopher's commentary, and he'll point out the you know say like it's almost exactly like it, but he skipped this point and this point and this point and this point. And I'm like oh oh, oh yeah, I, I was forget- I was forgetting about those right. I'd have noticed them had I put the two texts side by side and actually done a comparison. But now I don't have to because Christopher's cataloged that. That I find is um um is is so. Useful, uh, really, really useful. So again, it's not to say that you can just skip Christopher's commentary uh, entirely, but it's okay to sort of skim over. It's okay to skip the notes on the changes of the names if you're not interested in that. It's okay. Um, so, uh, so again, my primary advice is just don't try to engage with every nitpicky detail. Don't try to uh, to be able to keep in your mind exactly like. So in what text does Melko change to Melkor? It's okay. It's fine. Don't worry about that. Um, I would encourage you instead to engage with the stories. You can just read the Book of Lost Tales, for instance, and you know, and just do some kind of broad comparison and contrast. Again, you can be guided in this by Christopher's discussions of the similarities and differences. Um, but you know, just sort of think about how does it. You know, the the real fun, I think, comes, or at least, I should say more cautiously, the real fun for me starts with that kind of a, a more general comparison where you're just thinking, like, how how is it this, that this story, um, what are some of the kinds of different directions that this story, this version of the story goes compared to the Silmarillion? How does the, how is the flavor of this story different, if you see what I mean by that, than the published Silmarillion. Um, those kinds of things are, to me, the real beginning of the of the fun um, in the History of Middle-Earth series. And if you can start there um, with that kind of big picture, again, just like reading Silmarillion, right? Don't don't worry about, uh, you know, the, the, the Moriquendi and uh, the Avari and what is the difference after all and all that kind of thing. Don't worry about that, right? Just... Just focus on the narrative of the, you know, the, the the story of the elves' march to the west and leaving some along the way, right? That's that's kind of the good stuff, right? And then you can get into some of the other details um, as you go along. So uh, anyway, so yeah, so don't try to retain it all. That's the that's the primary uh, that's the primary piece of advice uh, that I have. Um, okay. All right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And Josh, yeah, that's a great point. Josh Ramsey says, uh, even language nerds like me aren't nearly as interested in the minutiae as, uh, as, uh, as, as, as Christopher is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very detailed. And you know what? That is awesome. Right? That is awesome. And I have to admit, myself, when I read Christopher Tolkien's commentary, I can't help but feel like 
I am in the presence of a radically different personality from my own, <laughs> right? I just, like, I don't... I mean, I admire it, but I admire it... I mean, I'm so on the outside looking in when it comes to the the level of minutiae, uh, Josh, to use your word, that Christopher will kind of bring out and focus on. Um, and I find myself... Um, uh, I find myself... By con- by contrast, kind of getting a little not quite impatient, but sometimes almost impatient, um, with the fact that Christopher is at times content only just to sort of discuss the minutiae and not focus on the big picture, right? Yeah, but so what? Like, how does the meaning of the story change? You know, let's 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 look at the big picture. But then again, I should um, I should be grateful that um, uh, he didn't do it exactly as I would because then I wouldn't have anything to talk about. So it's all good. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, <laughs> yeah, Tom says he grew up listening to his father arguing with Lewis and the other Inklings. No wonder he could go on about minutiae. Yeah, and, and, and you know, Tom, the thing is, is that I am uh, I am under... I am under no misconception about this. The ways in which I differ from Christopher, I know I would differ from, from you know, from Ronald too. I differ from 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 his dad, right? I mean, I, and I've always been conscious of this myself when I study Tolkien, especially when I study his life, and um, you know, I, Tolkien's works resonate with me personally so much, and and you know, they mean so much to me, and I love talking about them. But personality-wise, I'm so different from Tolkien. You know, I, I just, I don't, I, you know, it's funny. Sometimes people will ask me, like, what would you talk about if you, like, got to sit down and talk with Tolkien? And I'm always like, I have no idea, you know. Like, would he be interested in discussing the kinds of things that I like to talk about? You know, maybe he would. I'm not sure he would. I feel more confident if he had the opportunity to start the conversation that I would probably fall short um, in being able to talk about the things that he would be really interested in, um, like especially the language stuff. So, um, so yeah, I, you know, it, I, I, again, if if uh, I'm certainly not trying to say like Christopher is like betraying the spirit of his father's work by being so pedantic about all this stuff. No, no, I, I'm sure his dad would love it. I, I'm sure his dad would love it, uh, and it wouldn't even surprise me to learn that. Uh, and I don't know this wild speculation about to occur. Uh, it would not surprise me to learn that Christopher almost kind of has his dad in mind. Like, I, I can imagine JRRT loving the History of Middle-Earth series. He would hate the fact that a lot of this stuff came out. I think he, I, I think he would be embarrassed to find a lot of, especially the early stuff, actually published. Um, but I think that the analysis that Christopher does, I think I think that his dad would love it, and the two of them would have a delightful conversation about it. And again, I'm not even... Uh, I like to kind of think that Christopher is almost writing with that in mind. Um, but again, in as much as he's doing that, he's not hes not really writing for me personally. And, Karina, that's okay. It's okay. It's fine. Um, Josh, I absolutely agree. Um, I have uh, i have always felt... When it comes to, to Lewis and Tolkien, two of my very favorite authors... Um, I have always felt that I I like and understand and uh, um, 
you know, and can talk more easily about Tolkien's uh, uh, fiction and poetry than Lewis's. But personality-wise, I'm so much more like Lewis than like Tolkien. I, I, from every, you know, just as the more I read and study about Tolkien's life and 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 things, the the less I feel that I really have that much in common with him from a personality perspective. The contrary is kind of true uh, with C.S. Lewis, and I find I have much, much, much more in common. I think so much more like Lewis, um, which is one reason why I really like Lewis's nonfiction so much because I find he he writes so much like I think. Um, same is not true of Tolkien. I am still beating my head against parts of on fairy stories because Tolkien does not write like I think at all. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Gwendolyn, that's a really great point. Gwendolyn says perhaps Christopher isn't quite sure about some of it himself and only explains the things he is, he is certain he completely understands, unwilling to put down in writing anything he isn't perfectly sure of with his father in mind. Gwendolyn, I do think that that really informs him, and, and I also suspect, Gwendolyn, that it's one of the reasons that he doesn't do the kind of thing that I want him to do. What I'm doing is much more reckless, right? I'm like, hey, let's like talk about the big picture, right? Let's let's talk about meaning. Let's 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 really kind of look at the overall narrative of the story. Christopher doesn't want to go there, right? Because he doesn't want to put himself between the text and the um, and the reader, right? His goal as editor is to present the texts and to explain the choices that he made in presenting the text as he has, right? And to try to show the other elements that aren't in the primary text, right, but are in the notes and things like that, and explain how that all fits together. But his goal is, I mean, it's it's, it's very much more humble. What Christopher is doing is much more humble than what I'm doing, right? I'm doing interpretation, right? I'm, I'm sort of saying, let's do some readings and see what fits and, and see what works. Christopher seems actively to avoid that most of the time, and he wants to just sort of be off to the side or in the background um, and just, you know, his only job is to sort of hold up the text and leave it to us, right? Which is great. I totally respect that. That's really good. And Gwendolyn, you're, I, I do think that you're right, that he... Uh, he tends to be very cautious about what he will assert. Um, yes, Josh, he's a transmitter uh, of the text. At least that's that's the work that he's doing as an editor here is is to focus on being the transmitter um, versus being an interpreter. Yeah, an, an interpreter. That's that's how I see what I do. I mean, that's what I love doing um, is um, is interpreting, um, but. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it is. Yeah, Nancy, and you're right. They're different responsibilities. You know, what I'm doing and what Chris are doing are totally different. And it's you know, it's not that like one is better or one is worse. That we have different. We're, you know, we have different jobs, different relationships to the text, doing different things. Um, but uh, um, anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but again, just this is another reason why. Again, I think. <laughs> Sorry, I was just reminded of that line from The Hobbit, um, where. Um, it's like, there it is. Christopher Tolkien is an editor, right? Uh, and uh, will tell you uh, interesting enough things about the text if you don't expect too much, right? <laughs> that is, you can't expect... You, we might expect, um, knowing this is Christopher, knowing that he worked with his dad for years on this stuff, knowing that he knows more, not only more about the texts and more about the process of the text, but more about his dad's vision, right? And his, the and and the development of his dad's ideas about these things. He knows more about this stuff than anyone on the on the earth. And so, I think that one 
sort of issue I think that happens sometimes with the History of Middle-earth series for people is that they get kind of disappointed that it isn't you know like it's 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 not what some people kind of hope that it would be right that is to say what we kind of wish it were is like the backstage pass right you know the full like okay Christopher tell us the real scoop right tell us what your dad was really thinking and Gwendolyn as you point out he doesn't do that right Impulson never does that very very rarely uh, does he do anything like that um uh, so, yeah, and Brian uh, Dimmick points out a similar thing that uh, maybe he, he uh, also knows that his dad didn't come to final conclusions about a lot of the things that are most difficult, and he doesn't want to speculate on how it would or should have come out. Yeah, Brian, see, that's another issue, right? You know, often when you're an editor, you've got you've just got to make a call, right? Um, as he did in the published Silmarillion, right? He had to make a call, and so he made it, right? And said, here's, this is this is the text, we're, we're going with this, right? Um, and now he's, um, as James Libeck suggests, perhaps overcorrecting uh, for having done that. Um, but it seems to me, James, even just like the proportions, right? Um, that is, if you think of the these two different postures that Christopher Tolkien has been in, first in the editing of the Silmarillion, and then in the editing of the history of Middle Earth, right? And you see, it's very—it's a very different position. The first time he had to make the call, you know, Brian, as you're saying, he—he he had to not just speculate; he had to put something down, right? Um, he had to say, "This is the story. This is how it goes, and not any other way," right? Um, you know, because you're right, Brian. A lot of these things, Tolkien hadn't taken it to a final form. He was thinking about different things and maybe going to change stuff and who knows where he was going exactly. Um, even Christopher didn't know. Even J.R.R.T. didn't know, right? So um, so what is poor Christopher to do when he needs to put something down on the page and call it the Silmarillion, right? Um, he, by definition, has to decide its final form, right? Because that's where, where how it goes to press. But it seems like he was not most comfortable with that role. And he seems to relish the role that he has in the history of Middle-earth much more, right? Okay, he's out of that business, right? Now he's just going to present us with the stuff. He's going to present us with all the raw materials, and he's going to leave it to us to make sense of it. And, um, uh, you know, that's... that's uh, um, um, anyway, you know, so I, I, it, I can't help but think that he sounds more confident but notice, that is a crit fix statement, right? Maybe he is more confident, maybe he's not more confident. Anyway, I guess, you know, maybe we can kind of conclude that he's probably more comfortable since uh, he spent so much more time on it. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, yeah, yeah, okay. All right, well, Karita, that was a long answer, but it's an important topic. I mean, that that's, been, there's, you know, as I say, Karita, I'm really glad that you brought it up, because to some extent, um, this issue is kind of like the elephant in the room, you know, has been the elephant in the room for the last year, right, as we've been discussing the history of Middle-earth stuff. Um, and I can get so focused on the, like, hey, isn't this fun? This is awesome. Let's read this. That I I fail even to really properly acknowledge, um, oh, P.S., parts of it are really boring and perhaps inexplicable to you. Like, that's fine. It's me too, right? Um, so, and it's... Just important to um, um, to uh, uh, to to 
um, uh, lay that out there. So, okay. Uh, on to other questions. All right. This from Peter Ripsky. I've noted a few instances in which Tolkien's conception of some particular scene or notion changed between his early conception and the published Silmarillion, yet references, descriptions, or other remnants of the initial conception remain. You touched on two of these, Nienna being the sister of of Melkor and Manwe, and Turin's place in the last battle. Remnants of these concepts seem to remain in Nienna's plans or pleas for Melkor, and Turin's place as a great hero of the elves. Um, that reference is not in the Hobbit. That's in the Lord of the Rings. Um, it's when uh, I, at the end of the Council of Elrond, when Elrond says to Frodo um, that even if, uh, and I say to you, Frodo, son of Drogo, and he says even if the, the 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 great elf friends of old were to be gathered together, Baron, Hurin, and Turin, uh, you would have a place among them, right? Um, and so yeah, that like. Baron, Hurin, Turin, which of these things is not like the other, right? You know, if you if all you have is the published Silmarillion, that reference to Turin is a little hard to get, right? Like, okay, I mean, you know, I mean, I've talked about this, bar, I've talked about this in the Silmarillion seminar, even, you know, that like the Turin kind of seems like a a net loss for elven kind, right? Did you really do the elves many favors in the long run? Um, uh, but anyway, we'll come back. We'll come back to that specific instance. Actually, no, we talk about that specific inst- instance now, Peter. Because um, Peter, I thought that that was a fantastic observation. I hadn't been thinking of that reference in those terms. We've talked about a couple examples of this kind. That is places where we can see this. Um, or we can see this sort of remnant, uh, as you call it, this this uh, passage which makes so much more sense when we look backwards. And the the one about Nienna that we did discuss uh, is um, uh, d- does help to kind of make sense of that, right? Um, what seems like a puzzle in the published Silmarillion, like is Nienna a sucker, right? I mean, that's the, the published Silmarillion kind of asks the question, you know, make, I, I think you have to kind of ask the question, um, you know, was Nienna just a sucker when, uh, uh, when, and I'm not saying that your answer has to be yes, but you have to answer, you have to ask the question, right? Um, anyway, uh, it does, Peter, the, knowing this older version of the story puts it in a whole new light, right? Now we can see, okay, this, this has kind of lingered, right? It's lingered from, from the old days. And I would say, by the way, um, as a side note, um, goodness, that's a major pattern in Tolkien's writing. And this is a really fascinating thing. Tolkien, I think about the relationship between Tolkien and revisions, right? Um, there are two potentially, not, not exactly contradictory, but two, I'll call them contrary impulses that we can clearly see in Tolkien. Anytime you look at Tolkien revising something, right, um, rewriting something, um, we can see these two things at work. One is what a niggler he is, right, and he talked about himself in that way. He used that term, it's, you know, the sort of the um, uh, autobiographical context of, of Leaf by Niggle, right, for instance. Um, he's a niggler. He's always 
tweaking things. He's a perfectionist, and he's he's always going back and fiddling with stuff. This is why, uh, you know, as we've talked about a couple times, he so rarely finished stuff because he'd write something, he'd put it aside for a while, he'd come back, and instead of picking up where he left off, he'd go back and start again, right? But, but he was also extremely retentive, conservative. He didn't throw much stuff away. Even when he changes the context entirely, he keeps so much more than you would think. Um, that's one of the things that I find so striking again and again and again um, when I read different drafts of things that Tolkien wrote. Um, so take what my one of my favorite examples from The Hobbit. Um, and I talk about this... Uh, I, I talked about this in my book because I love this moment so much. You remember the moment in chapter 5, the, you know, the Riddles in the Dark chapter, at the end of the Riddle game, when Gollum goes back to his island to get his ring, right? And Bilbo um, uh, thinks to himself, right? When, so when Gollum takes off and goes, he says, I, I, we must go fetch some things first, things to help us, Right? And Bilbo can't imagine what things he could possibly be talking about. And Bilbo thinks he's just making an excuse to go off, to sneak off into the dark and, and get out of his bargain, right? Get out of giving, you know, showing Bilbo the way out. And that he would never, he, he didn't expect to see Gollum again, right? And, but then the narrator tells us, but he was wrong. Gollum did mean to come back, right? Um, because he was angry now and hungry. Um, he fully intends... To, he's he's going to the island not to try to, to escape, but in order to arm himself with his ring so he can come back and treacherously murder Bilbo, right? Um, when you go back and read the first draft of that, when you go back and read the, not the first draft even, but even the published version of it, um, the first edition of uh, Chapter 5 of The Hobbit, um, the one, and... I, I, I can't do the whole Chapter 5 story because... That's a long story, and we've. But if you haven't heard the story yet, of course, he did a major revision of it after he started writing the Lord of the Rings, and the original chapter five was quite different. But when you go back and read the original chapter five, that passage just jumps off the page at me. And what's so fascinating about it is, on the one hand, big picture, the scene is totally different, right? One hundred and eighty degrees reversed. Gollum sneaks away, not in order to get a, a weapon, essentially, right? Something to enable him to kill Bilbo. He goes out in order to get the ring, in order to give it to Bilbo. Both times, in the original draft and in the, in the revised draft, the narrator comments in almost exactly the same words. Bilbo didn't expect to see him again, but he was wrong. Gollum did intend to return, right? But the reasons he intends to return are diametrically opposed. In the original version, he intended to return because Gollum would never, ever, ever cheat at the riddle game. Right, it is uh, uh, Bilbo. If had Gollum known that Bilbo was suspecting that Gollum was trying to think out on on his deal, Gollum would have been offended, right? Because Gollum would never, ever, ever cheat, right? That's why Bilbo's wrong to think that. In the published, in the later version, of course, in the revised version, he's wrong because Gollum is much worse than he thinks, right? He's Gollum's much better than he gives him credit for in the first version. He's much, much worse than he gives him credit for in this in the in the revised version. But the interesting thing to me is not the reverse not just the reversal, right? 
What's interesting to me is that Tolkien accomplishes that reversal with like the minimum possible number of changes. Right? He changes like the fewest words that he possibly can in order to utterly flip the meaning of the passage. Um, how close that passage is to the original is the thing that blows my mind. Right? I mean, I think if I were writing it, um, I would just scrap it. Right? I mean, I, 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 I know that I want to flip it. I wouldn't scrap the whole thing. But I would scrap that scene, that paragraph, anyway. He doesn't even scrap the whole paragraph. He takes the sentences that he originally wrote in which, in which the intention and the, and the purport of those sentences is opposite, literally opposite of the one he's going to convey. And instead of saying, I think I'll just delete that and write a whole new sentence, instead he just changes a few words and with the result of changing the meaning by like 180 degrees. Um, it's astounding to me. Uh, and it's the same thing uh, if we do keep on with the History of Middle-Earth series. We will soon, after The Lost Road, which is Volume 5, get to, in Volume 6, The Return of the Shadow, where uh, we get the history of The Lord of the Rings. That is, the draft history. We'll be able to, to, to follow the development of The Lord of the Rings story as it goes through, through, through drafts. Um, and we'll see the same thing there. I find The Return of the Shadow completely mind-blowing, too. When you look at the story of Bilbo Baggins and where it begins, right? You know, his very, very first drafts when he sits down to start writing a sequel for The Hobbit, right? And, uh, and, and to look at how much of that stuff, you know, to, to look at the, that, the initial sketch of the continuation of Bilbo's story that he first wrote, you know, in his very, very first attempt to write a sequel... Um, and how much of that stuff uh, stays, right? That you recognize bits from from the Fellowship of the Ring that are still there, right? Um, it's uh, it's amazing. It's just amazing to me how again how how retentive he is, how loath he is to cut anything, to chuck anything. He'd rather change it. He'd rather recontextualize it. He'd rather um, adapt it to a different pur- purpose. Um, so, so Peter, getting back to your specific ish, uh, your specific points here, looking at the looking at how Tolkien does this, it's utterly unsurprising that such things as this should occur, right? It's totally what I would expect to find, um, given what we see when Tolkien does revise a draft. So he he does go back and rewrite, but he doesn't completely rewrite, and he almost never just pitches out what he had before. Um, and you will see usually a pretty close relationship between what he had before and what came what came next. This is one of the reasons, by the way, why I find the sketch in the Quinta so fascinating. Right when we were talking about that at the beginning of this book, um, I find this a really sort of s- it's a really rare moment in Tolkien's life. Um, for him to go back and go over the same material and not keep it. I mean, some phrases and concepts from the Lost Tales still creep up, of course. I'm not saying he's utterly, you know, it's 100% different. But the gap, I mean, what he genuine, the extent to which he genuinely left the Lost Tales behind in its structure and its tone and all of those things and wrote what in the Quenta is really a very new thing. Um... So how radically new that n- new attempt, right? That 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 return to the material. How radically new that is compared to the old version. That's rare, 
in Tolkien. Quite rare. You don't find it anywhere in The Hobbit. I mean, at no point. There are things that he cuts and some things that are, you know, I'm not saying that nothing in it is noteworthy, but you don't find anything like that. I mean, again, chapter one, go back to read the, the first um, snippets of chapter one, the first draft of chapter one, the Prifting Fragment, um, uh, as, as John Ratliff calls it, of the chapter one of The Hobbit, and what you'll notice is it's you know a lot of chapter one right it's it's you know there there are changes but um but a lot of it is there and a lot of it is there uh very fully um so uh anyway yeah um okay good let's see uh um yeah oh good yeah Alyssa uh, points out another really great example of that uh, dialogue, that uh, conservation of dialogue. Great example, Alyssa. Alyssa, um, uh, that, um, remember in the uh, Return of the King, when Denethor says, I will not yield the river and the Pelennor unfought. Right? And in context, that's he's saying that in ordering Faramir into the sort of, well, I was about to say suicidal, homicidal, frankly, uh, uh, defense of the of the Pelennor, right? That's, this is the conversation that leads Faramir in the book to say, if I return, Father, think better of me, right? Um, uh, you know, do you wish that our places were reversed, me and Boromir? I wish that indeed, right? I mean, so like, Denethor's almost said that he wishes him dead and is almost ordering him to his death, right? But of course, as Alyssa points out in the draft... Faramir says that. I will not yield the river and the Pelennor unfought, not unless my lord father commands me beyond all denial. Faramir is the one who is stubbornly insisting upon defending the river and the Pelennor, right? So, again, Tolkien completely flips the dynamics of the scene, right? Now it's Faramir doggedly, you know, originally Faramir doggedly insisting on the defense, then later Denethor pushing Faramir into the defense, and yet, same words, exactly, right? He just took the precise same line, and and so instead of writing a new line, he takes the same line and puts it in a different context, in this case, in the mouth of a different speaker, and boom, got a new scene, right? But same lines, that's, yeah, that's just, that's how he does, that's what Tolkien does, he's extremely conservative with that, um, so uh, anyway, anyway, so I this is so one of the results of this is we get lots of nuggets like this. And Peter, this is a great one. And Peter, I want to take a moment to, to I you are absolutely right. I was not thinking of that Turin reference as a, one of these kind of survivals from the old times. But you know, Peter, I'm completely convinced you haven't made a full argument here, but your concept I think is spot on. Um, if you read that list, right, Baron, Hurin, and Turin, if you read that list in the context only of the published Silmarillion, it does not make a lick of sense. As um, Yana had said, you'd really think it would be too, you know, that Tuor would have a, a, you know, better credentials for that list than Turin would. Absolutely, yeah. Eärendil, uh, perhaps? I mean, okay, maybe Elrond doesn't mention his dad, Um uh, you know, and maybe he, maybe he'd be shy about two or his his grandfather for the same reason. But but anyway, you know, um, uh, there's um, uh, anyway. Point is, 
if you just go by the published Silmarillion, Turin sticks out like a sore thumb in that list. But, Peter, exactly as you point out, if we don't, if we think about that line in the context of where the story is here, right, especially with that idea of Turin's place in the last battle, as you point out, right, which, remember, it's not going to get repeated again, but that doesn't mean it's totally gone. Is it possible that Tolkien went to his grave with the idea of Turin Turinbarsk giving uh, Morgoth his death blow? Maybe he did, right? It doesn't make the later writings, right? He doesn't, but that doesn't mean, as Christopher himself so often points out, the fact that a detail like that is not mentioned or Tolkien doesn't write that doesn't, isn't proof that Tolkien has decided actually to cut it, right? So, um... So, Peter, yeah, if we think about it in this context, just think about Frodo and what Frodo is doing. And the Council of Elrond is just a volunteer to take the Ring of Power and take it to Mount Doom and throw it in the fire. Um, and Elrond is complimenting him and saying that he... It's a, but it's not just a... It's not just, think about that list now. Baron, Hurin, Turin. What do they have in common? Right? They don't... They don't have mere greatness in common. It comes off... It's easy to look at this as... Uh, it's easy to look at this as... Like a, uh, just the Hall of Fame, right? This is the Elf Friend Hall of Fame, right? This is the inner circle of the Elf, uh, of the Elf Friend Hall of Fame. And Frodo, you're going to be... You're totally going to the Hall of Fame if you, uh, if you, if you do this, right? Um, but I don't think... I don't think that's what it is. Right? If Peter's right, and I suspect Peter is right, if Peter's right, it fits together so much more beautifully than that. What do they have in common? Baron, Hurin, Turin. Turin Morgoth Slayer, right? In the in the Dagor Dagoroth, in the in the in the last battle. What do they have in common? The three of them. Um the three of them all think of think of how they all defy Morgoth. That's what they have in common, right? Baron went and cut the Silmaril from Morgoth's crown, right? He had help, I know, but Luthien doesn't count as an elf friend on account of she's an elf, right? Um, Baron went, so Baron defied Morgoth to his, well, okay, he was slinking under his chair, but anyway, you get it. He challenged Morgoth, right? Cut the Silmaril from Morgoth's crown. Hurin defied Morgoth to his face, right? Yeah, he fought Fens of Serac, he did lots of awesome things, but he defied Morgoth to his face, right? Turin is going to be the one who ultimately stands against Morgoth and is going to stick his sword through him. Therefore, that's the company, therefore, that Elrond is putting Frodo in. If you do this, Frodo, if you dare to go to the Blackland, to go to Mordor, and bring the enemy's ring into the heart of his own domain and throw it into the Samothnar, throw it into the Cracks of Doom where it was forged, into Sauron's, you know, personal the you know, personal forge fires, right? You're going to be like Baron, Hurin, Turin. You're going to be another one of those defiers of the power. He can't defy Morgoth directly anymore. That's not Frodo's fault, right? But uh, but it's, it's totally going to be like him, right? 
Um, exactly, Gwendolyn. Yeah, challenging the ultimate enemy, the worst known, uh, and uh, and 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 escaping it at the very least. Uh, at the very at, at the very least, uh, uh, living. Josh points out that it's a shame he didn't mention Fingolfin in this context. But yeah, no, he's an elf. Exactly. Does doesn't qualify. There have been other elves who defied Morgoth as well, right? But the but if you think about it, those are the only humans who did, right? The only mortals who did. So he okay, he's putting Frodo in that. In that um, in that context, um, uh, so, but Tuor, you know, say Roy is uh, uh, thinking that uh, Tuor and Arthur are both are thinking that Tuor's uh, is is kind of getting the shaft. No, no, no. Again, it's not. If again, thinking about it in this context now, it's not just these three are better than everybody else, right? Tuor is second class citizen compared to those. That's not what he's saying. This wasn't what Tuor. Tuor didn't do that. Tuor didn't defy Morgoth. Not personally. He didn't stand against him personally. Yeah, I mean, you know, he helped the resistance and he enabled the people to escape Gondolin and he delivered the message of Olmo and everything. And Arendel was a kind of a big deal, right? But again, none of them... None, you know, Yana wants to get Arendel in on his slaying of Ancalagon, but... No. I mean, I, it's, it's not the same... I'm not trying to diminish what they did. I'm not trying to say Tour and Arendo aren't awesome. I'm just saying what they did was different. And also, in its way, less like what Frodo's doing. Right? Um, you know, coming on your magic flying starship... Starship. See, see, see what I did there? And, uh, and killing the greatest of all dragons. That's awesome. That's a big deal. But it's not very much like what Frodo is doing, right? What Baron did, um, sneaking into uh, Thangorodrim and taking the Silmaril, that's much more like, that's quite like what Frodo is doing. As, of course, Frodo and Sam are very aware. You think about the conversation that they have uh, on uh, the stairs of Kirithungal, right? They're very conscious of the fact that what they're doing is uncomfortably parallel uh, to what Baron does. And, of course, this is the parallel between Baron and Frodo is, uh, um, is really important, right? I mean, we the whole nine fingers thing, right? Um, uh, anyway, anyway, anyway. Um, uh, so, so yeah. Anyway, the point is, it's 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 not just magnitude. Again, it's not a hall of fame. It's about you two will have done what those three did. Except again, to get back to Peter's point, Turin doesn't do it in the published Silmarillion, right? He never does it. He kills the dragon. Um. But he never stands against Morgoth. So it's harder to see that pattern. I never thought of that pattern. But what I'm saying about, about, about you know, Elrond's argument and the whole the pattern here, uh, this is new. I never thought of this in my life before. Um, thanks to Peter's observation here about that reference to Turin being perhaps one of these survivals. Um, and now that I see it, I think it makes perfect sense. I love this idea. I think this works really, really well. And it makes so much sense of that moment uh, compared to what the published Silmarillion alone can make of that moment. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, so I love it. I, I, think, I, think that's absolutely, uh, I think that's absolutely fantastic. Um, 
But again now, Tolkien's moved on from this, right? Probably. Or maybe not. Maybe the thing is, is that when he includes Turin, he still has that story in his mind. And he's thinking, maybe, who knows? Maybe Tolkien is still thinking, you know, it's the 40s now, right? Uh, maybe he's thinking, when I get around to, after I finish up The Lord of the Rings, when I get, when I get around to, to uh, when I get around to writing the rest of the Silmarillion, right? I'll, I'll get to the, the I'll, I'll finally get to the Dagor, Daggeroth and really get to do justice to, you know, Turin's duel with Morgoth. Who knows? Maybe he's still thinking that, right? Um, I, uh, I, I think it's possible, possible. Um, or maybe not. Maybe he has decided, nah, you know, the whole Turin hanging around for a long time for some reason, his spirit not leaving the circles of the world like other mortals for some reason is just too weird and he's not going to go there. Maybe he did decide that. Maybe he did reject it. But he didn't change that Turin reference. right? And again, why would he? Instead he does with it what he does. You know, it, it, it still works. It's still evocative. I mean, of course, notice what I've just been talking about. If you read that that passage, that that line in the in the Fellowship of the Ring, if you read it only in the context of the published Silmarillion, except don't forget, in what context was everybody reading it? Everyone was reading it in the context of no Silmarillion, <laughs> right? It hadn't been published yet, so don't forget it. I know that some of you uh, uh, are, are are have been around long enough to remember this. Um, to you know, to remember reading the Lord of the Rings bef- prior to the publication of the Silmarillion, um, but uh, I, I, you know, for people who were reading the Lord of the Rings when it was published, they were you know saying then Baron or Hurin or Turin, and they were all like, "Who? Huh? What?" Uh, <laughs> you know, that's um, the, you know, it, the, those are just names, right? Kind of mysterious names, um, but anyway. That's uh, and oh, Kate. That's really great. Kate Neville points out that, uh, um, in one sense, of course, Turin is also like Frodo. Both of them fail, right? Turin and Frodo both fail as well. Um, Turin does not fail when he confronts Morgoth at the end, right? Um, but that is an interesting parallel. Um, uh, Kate thinking about that. Now, Tom asks, how would Elrond know about the... He would presumably know about the prophecies. I mean, remember, in the frame, um, uh, I don't think there's any reason to think that Elrond wouldn't have access to the stuff that, like, Elfwina could come to know. Um, So, yeah. I mean, I I would think that that would be uh, that that would be passed down among them. I mean, he used to hang out with Gilgalad, right? Who, um, you know, and, 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 and others of the Noldor, like Gildor, who's still around. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, I don't see any reason to think that Elrond would not have also heard that prophecy, which it's never stated in any other way, but just as a, a prophecy, an indicator of what's gonna happen. But, anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Peter, that was awesome. What a what a what a what a cool idea that was. Um, I uh, I just absolutely. I know I kind of ran with it a little bit, but it's that's that's the cool thing about it. I mean, it's such a um, it's a really uh, a really thriving seed of an idea there. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's uh, keep going. James had uh, 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 several good questions. Um, and James, thank you so much for bringing this out. Uh, he says, uh, I've come up with a number of nice theories about Tolkien's intent with respect to writing the annals in the Quinta. Thanks, James. Glad you like those. Um, those are fun. Uh, whether these are accurate or not, the piece that I have the hardest time fitting into any of the various publication scenarios is the Ambar Kanta. He wrote it as if he was writing for others, but it's so hard to imagine that he thought it was publishable. So why make it a fine manuscript? Why especially give it a title page? Uh, maybe I... No, I did not touch on that. Um... So, uh, yeah, James, that, thank you so much for talking about this. I did not touch on this, and the primary reason I didn't is that, uh, th thinking back here, Tom, I'm going to go one more level of meta. Thinking back, not thinking about the development of Tolkien's story, not thinking about the progress of Christopher Tolkien's treatment of Tolkien's story, but thinking about the progress of my own reactions to Christopher Tolkien's treatment of Tolkien's story over the course of this past seven weeks, um, uh, I became really, really interested. You know, I was, we were observing, making observations about the sketch and the Quenta, and, you know, we're asking, like, what is the Quenta and what's going on here? Um, but once we kind of became, once I became comfortable with the Quinta, I kind of left that aside for a while. When we were doing the maps in the Embarcanta in that class, we were kind of comfortably in the world of, now we're looking at supporting information, right? He's drawing maps. Hey, that's fun. He's writing about, you know, how the world works and drawing diagrams. That's kind of cool, right? Um, seeing him flesh out his, uh, his, his secondary world in this way you know, sort of in front of our eyes, as it were. Really cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, Tom, Tom Hillman says, but what about my reactions to your reactions? Yeah, exactly, Tom. See, this, it uh, never ends. You can get as meta as you like. Uh, anyway, anyway, anyway. Um, the, <laughs> the, uh, the, the point is, um, I wasn't... Uh, James, you're absolutely right to say that... Um, it wasn't until the Annals of Valinor that I started getting all, you know, hot and bothered about this question, right? That was where I was saying, like, hang on a second, what? It, because that's where it kind of seemed to leave the rails, in a sense. Like, okay, I th you know, it looked like we were just doing supporting documents, right? Um, private documents, even the, uh, even the, the, you know, like the maps and diagrams and everything, Um Okay, you know, maybe those could be included, you know, in publication, but they're but they seem to be of, of primarily uh, a sort of um, um, private interest. Um, but um, uh, anyway, so it was with the Annals of Valinor that I started to ask this question, like, "Hey, what is this thing, and what on earth are we doing?" I wasn't asking that about the Embarcanta, but James, you're absolutely right that I should have been because the Embarcanta does present the same puzzle. Um, I think, that, again, the reason that my own, uh, you know, that I didn't myself start twitching in this way when we did the Embarcanta is that the Embarcanta, again, it's, it's so obviously supplementary in its content, right? Again, the, the thing that was agitating me about the annals is, okay, hang on, we seem to be going back, why are we retelling this story, Right. And, and that question that I was focused on at the beginning of the Annals of Valinor class was, hang on, is this meant to be a replacement for the Quinto? Like, seriously, are we going back and redoing it in this new mode? Um, 
Whereas with the embarcante, that's never on the table, right? I mean, there's no again. It, the, the the material is obviously supplemental, so it didn't even I didn't even think twice really about the. But you're absolutely right to point out, James, that we do get that the in Christopher's description of the manuscript itself, it does sort of see that it does seem to sort of suggest that he had publication in mind. Um, you know, he's presenting it as if it's a. a I think not just written for himself. I agree in general. First of all, I would say his inclusion of a title page doesn't necessarily prove that it's uh, intended for a public audience. Um, I, I could easily imagine him doing a title page of that kind for himself. But but even accepting that, even even um, even accepting the title page as a piece of evidence that it's designed for an external audience. Um, I still don't find the Ember content as puzzling. And the reason I don't is big because it it fits. We have a we have a model for it, right? It's it's like an appendix, right? And it seems designed to be an appendix. It doesn't so if he intended it to be published, um, does he think it's publishable? <laughs> Roy uh, uh, and Corey Karlinski makes a uh, 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 a somewhat, <laughs> somewhat unkind comment it says the man who published Goblin Feet will think anything is publishable. That's <laughs> that's that's a it's, it's a fair cop, but uh, I like Goblin Feet. Um, oh, what a compelling rhythm um, that poem has. Uh, uh, I you know. Um, Anyway, sorry, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna get distracted talking about uh, talking about goblin feet, but I hear you, right? I, I understand. I understand. Uh, but again, what I would say is, I don't think there's any reason for us to think, or even really to suspect, that the Embarcanta was designed for independent publication, right? I don't think he's like, and like next, you know, that like he's imagining, you know, that the. You know, the literary world is going to be like, stop the presses, everyone! A new opus from J.R.R. Tolkien called The Embarcanta is coming out, right? I mean, I don't think that that's what Tolkien is is uh, is thinking here. But um, what I could easily see is, as he is preparing this for publication, especially if he's going to do, even at that point, even if it's just Quintipos poems, right? Or Quintipos a poem or two, um, or even just the Quinta, right? If that's the Silmarillion, this is going to publish it, um, including the Embarcanta. Having that as like an appendix to it, it's fine. Makes uh, makes perfect sense. Um, so, so again, I think it was one of the reasons why I didn't get uh, uh, worked up about it when we did the Embarcanta, is that it, because it, it seems to me to sort of fit, it's, it's, it doesn't present for me the same kind of puzzle that the Annals of Valinor presented. Um, so, and, and again, to me, I think it's just, if we don't think of it as, as independent publication, that is on its own, you know, as a monograph, um, to me, that, that kind of makes it much easier. It's supplemental material. It would make a great appendix with diagrams, right? Cool. Awesome. Um, maybe not necessary, but fun, right? Why not? Uh, now, 
James, you point to a uh, exactly James, like the like the the page in the book of Pizarro. Exactly, exactly. The with the diagrams and stuff. Sure, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's like the Embarcanto with diagrams is like a cross between the book of Pizarro and and you know the Lord of the Rings appendix, uh, you know, like the appendix A or no, more like appendix, you know. D E, you know, like the calendar appendix and the writing appendix and um and and that kind of thing. Anyway, um James asks a much thornier question next. The story of the ruin of Doriath and the necklace of the dwarves is one of the biggest unsolvable problems in the Silmarillion manuscripts. The A, B, and Q versions are basically the last versions, the, the Annals of Balerion and Quenta versions, are basically the last versions of the story that we get, and they're very short. It does seem like that part of the story received less of Tolkien's attention than the other great tales. There's no way to know, but I wonder if at least part of the reason isn't the negative light that it throws on the dwarves, and how that runs counter to the way his conception of them evolved in The Lord of the Rings in Appendix A. That's an interesting speculation, James. Of course, I mean, speculating as to why... I mean, here, we're like in asking that question, or at least in asking it that way, we really are just trying to get inside Tolkien's head. Right. So let's start... Let's back up a step here. First, the fact. And for those of you who are not familiar with this, James is quite right. There's... Um, oh, yeah, sorry, Karita. I used Tinwellant because of the number of syllables. Uh, I couldn't do how do you solve a problem like Thingol because it doesn't work. Um, I, it doesn't scan. Uh, so I needed a three-syllable... Th- and fortunately, since Thingol has had a whole bunch of names over history, I could easily find a three-syllable... Uh, uh, <laughs> name that scanned. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Josh Ramsey is, uh, is, 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 is quoting, well, that's an obscure quotation, Josh. Quoting the North Polar Bears marginal commentary, uh, marginal criticism of Father Christmas's poetry. Um, see, it didn't beat me. Uh, anyway, okay, all right, sorry, sorry, sorry. Enough about the sound of music. Um, though ever since I wrote that subtitle, I've had that song stuck in my head. Uh, so I feel like saying in a wholly different context, like Boromir, I am sorry I have paid. Uh, anyway, um, Ruin of Doriath. So, uh, James is very right to say that the Ruin of Doriath is a mess from a manuscript standpoint. It's a complete mess. And it's one of the places where the published Silmarillion is most sketchy. Um, sketchy in the sense of having the least to work with as far as texts. There are other um, there are other things which don't have a version later than this. I remember we talked about this, the fall of Gondolin, right? The, fall, the, the version of the fall of Gondolin in the Quenta is the last version of the fall of Gondolin Tolkien ever wrote. So when, when Christopher is in the 70s um, you know, trying to do the published Silmarillion, he's got nothing later than the Quinta written in 1930, right? So he has to go back 45 years uh, to the uh, to the Quinta uh, to get the material for the... And, and he has to decide. His his decision then is, as an editor, and we, we, we talked about this when we looked at this passage in the Quinta, um, his, his, his thing as an... His thing. His job as an editor there is to is to say, how do I handle this text? He does cut some things. He does add a couple things in order to bring the ideas into line with 
ideas which had clearly developed in other ways down the road. Even though Tolkien had rewritten this narrative, his some of his concepts had very distinctly changed. So Christopher tries to do as little as he has as he can to accommodate that last chunk of text from the Quinta to um, uh, to Tolkien's new ideas, and then the result published Silmarillion text for the fall of Gondolin. Right? That's relative. So so that's an example, uh, James, in which our texts. In fact, you could say, James, we have more recent stuff uh, on the ruin of Doriath than the fall of Gondolin. Because at least he did rewrite it in the Annals of Beleriand, right? We got a significant rewriting as opposed to the very, very sketchy business we got on the fall of Gondolin. Just a a very, very short summary. Um, So we kind of do get some new material on the ruin of Doriath in the Annals of Beleriand. So there we go, right? You know, even more recent than the fall of Gondolin. But that's not the problem, right? The problem is that it's really messy. It was relatively... It was comparatively, let me say that, um, based on the evidence that Christopher presents, it was comparatively clear what Tolkien meant to happen in the fall of Gondolin, right? How that story was meant to go. Um, It is way less clear how the ruin of Doriath was meant to go down later on, because Tolkien's ideas are much more radically changing. Now, why are they changing? Again, I want to try to see if I want to see if we can address this without just doing this simple try to get into Tolkien's head and guess what he was thinking or what motivated him personally to talk about something or have a you know that and that's really hard. I mean, you, we 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 can speculate about it. It's kind of fun, but there's not that much we can really do there. But here's what we can do. What we can do is look at the pattern in the in that story, if we just take the development of that story from the Book of Lost Tales through the Annals of Beleriand, um, what we see there is a there is like a a major like there's a tectonic shift going on inside that story, which is very unlike any of the shiftings that we get in the story of Gondolin. Right, the story of the fall of Gondolin. Many of the peripheral details have changed, including, of course, most notably, when the heck did Gondolin get founded and under what circumstances and what's the point and what is almost message. and all. Those are all important. We've talked about those things earlier on. All really important stuff. But at the end of the day, hidden city, betrayed by Meglin, Morgoth comes in and attacks it, hosts besiege the city, valiant fight... Flee through tunnel, up in mountains, Glorfindel and the Balrog. I mean, it's that's the story. It's the story in the Book of Lost Tales. That's the story. So lots of interesting stuff changes. But the core story is the core story of the fall of Gondolin. Not so the ruin of Doriath. Remember, because we talked about this, what was the core story of, uh, of the ruin of Doriath? in the Book of Lost Tales, and even in the sketch, to, 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 to some extent. Yes, good, Kate and Tom, exactly. Meme! Meme is the core of that story. The curse of meme. That was the story. The Ruin of Doriath was the story about the cursed dwarf treasure, right? It was like the 
gold, the treasure of the Nibelungs, right? It was that I mean, him taking this story, um, uh, you know, the story of of a dwarf cursed treasure, right, and the impact that it has, and you know, think about his poem, the Horde, uh, and and uh, you know, there's, there's there's you know, as well as his own reading, you know, if you're reading things like the Volsunga Saga and stuff like that. Um, that that the, the curse the curse was the story. It was the it was it was what was the issue with the gold. It was why Doriath clearly why Doriath fell, um, and it was obviously the moral of the story. And it even went on to undermine and overwhelm the story of this of the Sil- of the Silmaril itself. Baron and Luthien Silmaril gets lost, <clears throat> literally lost at sea, um, as a consequence of the curse of Meme. I mean, it's it's the 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 the. The story of the Silmaril goes down with the ship that is sunk by the story of the Curse of Meme in the older versions. Okay, so I mean, that's the story. Notice how that's been shifting. And it's, it's a huge, huge shift. Again, there's nothing to compare it to uh, in the story of the fall of Gondolin. Um, we were seeing um, in the later versions that... Um, uh, The story is it was coming. The story of the curse was still there, but it was not taking central place anymore. And honestly, if I have so looking at what looking at what happens, okay, um, at at the change that we see in that story, the trajectory is not clear. The trajectory is really muddy. It's like okay, so if you take. This was the story of the Nauglifring. If you take the Dwarf Curse, or rather if you marginalize the story of the Dwarf Curse, still present, still present even in, in the published Silmarillion to a radically lesser extent. Um, but anyway, you take that... If you, so you take the story of the Dwarf Cursed Gold out of the story of the Nauglifring, what do you have left? Right? I mean, it would be kind of like saying... You know, what if you decided to revise The Hobbit, and you decided to revise The Hobbit by making Bilbo a bit character and taking out the dragon, right? You could do that, but in what sense is that still the story of The Hobbit, right? Similarly, okay, Doriath still gets ruined, but what, what, what's the story now? What is, where is it? That's still an open. It's not real obvious in the Annals of Beleriand, right? In the way that so the problem is not that. We don't have any texts since the 30s. Again, true also of Gondolin. The problem is where it ended up. And where it ends up is in this state of it's evolving, but it's not there. It hasn't transformed into anything yet. Um, it's, um, it's still, at this point, a per, kind of an ugly duckling of a story. Um, so, this, I think, is why... Uh, and answering the why question in uh, um, the only way that sort of makes sense to me to try to answer it. When I again, when I look at what we have of those stories, uh, you can see. I mean, the it's going to take a lot more to, for Tolkien, not for Christopher, for Tolkien himself in his later years as he's revising this stuff. He's got uh, so much more to do on the, the Ruin of Doriath story. Um, it's just in a much more raw place. And he doesn't do it. That's the problem, right? That's why it's left a problem. Um, and Christopher has to... Poor Christopher, in his 
by my reading, kind of uncomfortable role as editor, adapter, chooser, right, has to do something. Um, Verlin Fligger told me that she once got Christopher Tolkien to admit to her verbally. She was talking with him and got him to confess that he did write chunks of the Thingol story, the Ruin of Doriath story, in the published Silmarillion. In particular, the speech that Thingol makes, the, like, how do ye of uncouth race, the last speech that Thingol makes before the dwarves cut him off at the knees, um, Christopher Tolkien made that speech up. JRT didn't write that. Because it's the bit that Tolkien never came back and re- revised, and Christopher had to do something. He had to either cut the Ruin of Doriath or you know, just marginalize it, or, you know, he had to fill in the gap as best he could, and he chose to fill in the gap. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Josh Ramsey says, I, I want to run Dr. Drought's lexomics on that chapter and see which parts are Ronald's and which parts are Christopher's. Uh, that would be fun. That would be fun. You should get together with uh, uh, with Sparrow Alden and work on that. That's, uh, uh, that's, uh, that's, um, that's cool. Anyway, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump ahead for a second. Just gonna skip a couple. I'll come back to them. Um, Kimber, I want to come to your question here because this uh, um, uh, this is this is this is fun stuff. Um, this is actually this has been a hobby horse of mine for a while, and I feel more strongly about this after studying. Uh, uh, the Shaping of Middle-earth with you than I did before. Gibber says, I noticed that the company of Elwing are blessed by the Silmarils. Interesting idea that they bring good things after all the conflict and badness that has come with their presence in Middle-earth and the changes of ownership. Yes, Kimber, that's very interesting. That is a huge, huge deal. I mean, it's one of the things that I would call a revolution of thought. Um... I mean, if I were asked to make a list of what do I think are the biggest, most momentous changes in Tolkien's in the concept of Tolkien's mythology between you know the Book of Lost Tales and 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 this period, the Quinta Annals of Beleriand, Annals of Valinor period, um, this is one of the things, Kimber, that I would point to. Um, the, not just the increased prominence of the Silmarils, not just him coming back and and putting the Silmarils in a central place. But the shift in the emphasis on the story here, um, and again, in large part, what we get is the Silmarils, the blessing of the Silmarils, displacing the curse of Meme, which follows the Silmaril because it gets it's part of the Naglafring now, right? And the Naglafring was made from the dragon gold, which was cursed by Meme, and so the curse of Meme lies upon the settlement. Uh, 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 at the at the at, at the Bay of Balar, um, not the blessing of the Silmaril. And remember that shift is also made with Baron and Luthien. In the earlier version, the curse of Meme. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Melian goes to them and says, "Don't keep. You've got the Naglafring and the Silmaril. Baron recovered it. Don't keep it. Right. Get rid of it. It's like it's radioactive. It's gonna and it doesn't. It destroys them. They die soon." Because the curse of meme that lies upon the Naglafring snuffed out Baron and Luthien. That's the older version, right? Now instead we have Kimber, just like you're noticing, of course, with Elwing um, and her company. Baron and Luthien too are blessed, and we get that 
that new brand new material here um, in this book about how the you know the land of the dead that live is is you know becomes blessed like you know this little glimpse of paradise here in Middle Earth that was never that was never there uh, before. I mentioned um, exactly. Tom says the fault is not in the stones, but in ourselves, as it were. Yes, absolutely. This has been. I called it a hobby horse, almost a pet peeve. Oh, it's almost risen to the point of a of a of a pet peeve. I have often heard people talk about the Silmarillion and speak as if the Silmarils themselves are accursed, like the Silmarils bring a curse wherever they go. And it's not that I can't see where this idea comes from. Right? It's not that I think that this reading is utterly groundless. Obviously, right? Um, Yes, of course, wherever Silmaril goes, usually suffering follows. But that doesn't mean it's the Silmaril's fault. As Tom says, the fault is not in the stones, but in us. Um, the metaphor, I know this is not a helpful metaphor, but it, perhaps it will help to sort of shift the ground. There's a kind of personalize it a little bit, thinking about it in the form of a person rather than in rocks. I always think of Spencer's Fairy Queen, and not just any part of Spencer's Fairy Queen, Book four of Spencer's Fairy Queen. I love the Fairy Queen by Edmund Spencer, uh, one of the longest poems ever written in English. And um, book four, uh, plot-wise, book four, book four is a complete mess. Um, but one of one of the sort of memorable bits uh, in book four is so. There's this female character named Florimel, and Florimel is remarkable because she is the most beautiful woman in the world. At that point, she, Helen was probably more beautiful, but, you know, it's been a while. Helen was a couple thousand years ago. So Florimel is the most beautiful woman in the world, in the world of the story. And guess what Florimel spends all of her time doing? Like 100% of Florimel's time, every time we meet her in the story, guess what she's doing? She is the most gorgeous, unequivocally desirable woman on earth. She was number one, Arthur, exactly, yeah, just like in The Princess Bride. Um, guess. Guess what she's doing? All the, being harassed, Karita. Yes, that's gentle. Running for her freaking life is what she's doing. She is being chased. Like, and there are times, it's, so, it's like, this part of the Fairy Queen gets, like, deeply random and really, and almost, like, kind of, uh, kind of surreal at times. Like, uh, and we'll be follow. We'll be in a, a canto where we're following a knight on this one particular quest that he's doing, and Florimel will just like run across the scene, being pursued by some lascivious man or other uh, masculine thing. Um, everyone is always trying to rape Florimel, um, uh, to take her and to haul her off and to make her their own because she is like the ultimate object of desi- of masculine desire. Um, now, she has a happy ending, by the way. Um, and there's a really funny moment where Florimel, uh, that, that there's a witch who makes a false Florimel. She <laughs> makes a fake Florimel. And then everyone's chasing the fake Florimel around, too. Hijinks ensue. Anyway, yeah, it is really upsetting, Nancy. But see, this is where I think, for me, the Florimel parallel, this is why I keep thinking about the Florimel parallel. Because it personalizes it. Oh, I, I, it, it. It's one thing to say that the Silmarils are a curse. It would be another thing to say that Flor- it's not Florimel's fault. She doesn't do anything wrong. And Spencer isn't condemning her. Spencer is condemning all the men that are pursuing her. 
And it is, Nancy, it is more horrifying, right? I mean, you know, it's, we, we don't have that same kind of personal reaction when we see, like, Mithros and Magalore going after the Silmarils, right? Because they're inanimate objects, ultimately. But, but thinking about it, thinking, putting a person in the place of the Silmarils, um, it's, it's not Florimel's fault. She's like, don't hate me because I'm beautiful, right? It's not Florimel's fault, right? She didn't do anything wrong. She's just that, she's just, and, and in fact, ultimately, again, she escapes. Florimel does not, in fact, get raped by any of them, and she does, in fact, get married and live happily ever after. So, like, all is well. Um, but, um, uh, but the point is, to me, that's the, the, the Silmarils are like that, right? The problem is not that the, Sil- the Silmarils do not bring evil where they go. Um, the problem is that again, the problem is not in the Silmarils, Tom, as you say. It's not, it's not in the stones. It's in us. Right, because we can't handle something that beautiful, that desirable. Right? Um, it's, but that doesn't mean the problem is in the desirable thing. It means the problem is in us. Right? The problem is not in the Silmarils. It's in the. It's in Feanor and the sons of Feanor. Their possessiveness is the curse, not the Silmarils, not the beauty of the Silmarils. And I think that this version of the story. The Quenta Annals of Beleriand version of the story makes that clearer than any other version of the Silmarillion story. Because you can see clearly several things. First of all, it connects through to the end of the story, because we know that the loss, right, where the Silmarils end up in the published Silmarillion, one in the sea, one in the earth, one in the sky, that's not the final resting place of the Silmarils. That's not the end of the story of the Silmarils, right? There's, like, brief reference to this in the published Silmarillion, but we don't really get it, right? Because we don't see what happens. Remember, we do get a glimpse of what's going to happen um, in, uh, in, in this version, right? In the Quenta, where we get reconciliation, right? Mithros collects them together again, and he yields them up, Right? and they're broken, and the magic sun is reborn, and the trees are returned. That's like the New Jerusalem, right? That's the second coming. That's the, that's the, the, the final transformation to ultimate paradise. And it's, that's locked in the Silmarils. The key to that is locked in the Silmarils. They're not a bad thing. They don't bring a curse, right? Um, but it's not until that curse is laid to rest. Think about how the the, the kinslaying, you know, the curse of the kinslaying is laid to rest. Uh, finally, when we have the forgiveness of the Teleri uh, at the you know, after the War of Wrath, um, the the curse of the oath of the is good, that's going to be laid to rest as well, um, and wound the wounds are going to be healed eventually, and the Silmarils are the means of that healing, the means of the rebirth of the magic sun. Um, they're not evil. They do not bring a curse. I think that's a significant misunderstanding of the sort of moral point that Tolkien is making. Again, the, the, the it's, you know, don't blame Florimel. Florimel wasn't asking for it, right? It's not Florimel's fault. It's the rapist's, it's the would-be rapist's fault. Um, that's this, that's the deal, with the sons of Fanor and with Morgoth and, and everybody else who covets the Silmarils. If wars break out around the most eminently 
beautiful, the most, uh, uh, the most, you know, incalculably beautiful and therefore desirable thing. If wars break out around that and curses come, it's not because that thing is evil, necessarily. Certainly not in this case. So, so anyway, like I said, that's always been a bit of a, a bit of a hobby horse of mine when it comes to talking about the published Silmarillion, uh, even. Um, but anyway, Kimber, I was really glad that you pointed to that here because I do think that that's a crucial, crucial point um, in um, in um, uh, in this. Yeah, Kate, that's really cool. I hadn't been thinking of that, but you're right. Kate Neville points out the parallel with Kurafin and Kelgrom's treatment of Luthien. Right? Think about how they respond when they are when she takes off her shadow cloak, right, and makes herself visible to them. And she, you know, so she she's like, "Hi, guys!" Right? And they're both of them. They respond like, that's actually a pretty good model. It's that's just like Floramel, right? That's what happens, you know. And then seriously, this happens. The Fairy Queen, this keeps happening. Um, somebody comes along. Poor Floramel. Somebody comes along and rescues her, right? She's running, right? And some would-be rapist is chasing her, and this knight comes along and is like, how dare you? That is awful. And he, and he cuts off his head. And we're all like, yay, Floramel is safe. And inevitably, the knight who cuts off the head of the guy then looks at her and is like, so, damsel, you're safe. Oh. <laughs> and next thing you know, off she goes running again. Um, but anyway, this is, uh, th- you're absolutely right, Kate. This is what we're seeing in Kurafin and Kelgorm, right? They, um, they, 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 they see Luthien and they're so blown away. Right, that they uh, um, they immediately desire her, and and uh, and they're ready to start wars. Right, and I, I mean it's um, uh, yeah, yeah. That's um, uh, again, Kate, as you as you suggest, it's another illustration of that same principle. Right, again, the it's not Luthien's fault. Right, this just shows that there's something wrong. With Kelligorm and Kurfin, it's a thing that's wrong with many people, right? Lots of people share this. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. Uh, all right, let me go back. Let me go back. I skipped a couple, and I don't want to skip them. Where was I? Okay, let's go back here. All right. Um, I want to talk about this for a second. <laughs> yes, Kate says men. Exactly, yeah. No, that's the problem. Um, uh, I want to talk about this mostly because I feel guilty. I, um, I've been talking about this a lot. I, I spent a lot of time almost two weeks ago talking about this in the Silmarillion film project because uh, we're coming to the end of, of season one and I couldn't avoid talking about this any longer. Um, the Origin of Orcs. And I know we talked about it some, but I can't remember. Anyway, I just want to touch on this for a second because I want to make sure that I get sometimes so confused talking which classes I've talked about what and everything. So I want to make sure I, I, I've covered this in case I didn't because I don't really remember. Um, but, uh, uh, but anyway, yeah, a couple of you are, are uh, affectionately, I think, laughing about the discussion we had in the Rolling Film Project last week, um, uh, two weeks ago. Another one in two days season finale we're going to be planning the season finale of season one uh the 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 war to begin all wars tom your title still love that title uh for the for the final episode the uh the chaining of milk are going to be happening uh friday morning join us um but uh anyway okay 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 
the point is not to get distracted by that. The point is orcs. Okay. Um, let's just clarify this a little bit. So, uh, Yana, thanks, Yana, for pointing this out. Um, Yana quotes the thing, The hordes of the orcs he made of stone, but their hearts of hatred. Glamhoth, people of hate, the gnomes have called them. Goblins, may they be called. But in ancient days they were strong and cruel and fell. Thus he held sway. This sounds very interesting as an alternate orc origin story, however it still does not solve and might even exacerbate Tolkien's concerns with the published story, meaning that the orcs are completely and utterly irredeemable. Was this early enough in Tolkien's career that this was not yet a real concern? Okay, so I, I just want to kind of lay out the terms here. Um, at least, let me say, lay out the terms as I understand them, okay? Uh, my understanding of Tolkien's issues with orc origin stories... Um, is that basically he finds himself caught between two theological issues. On the one hand is the issue of the ultimately the free will of the souls of the children of Iluvatar. It's clear that the children of Iluvatar, elves and men, their being comes from Iluvatar, not from the Valar, right? They have independent souls and the ability to choose. So if orcs are derived from the children of Iluvatar, as he will later say, um, he has not said that yet, of course, as Yana quotes, still by the end of Volume 4 of the History of Middle-earth, so still by the, by the 30s, orcs are still constructs in this way. He makes them out of stone and hatred, right? I don't know, we talked about that, the orc recipe, right? Uh, two parts stone, one part hatred. Um... Dash of nutmeg. Uh, no, oh, not nutmeg. Allspice. Anyway, point is, um, they're still constructs. So we don't have the free will problem, right? That's not his original problem. Um, the problem that he um, has at this point is a different theological problem. And it's a, theolo a theological issue that manifests itself, that is alluded to explicitly in The Lord of the Rings. Can Melkor make life? Right? Aule couldn't do it. But of course, as we've seen, we don't have Aule and Yavanna yet. We don't have the making of the dwarf story. That's not on the that's not on the table. That's another place, of course, where we see this uh, this other theological issue I'm talking about being raised. He's not raised it yet. He's so far he's comfortable with this that in his R and D department. Um, uh, Morgoth manufactures a bunch of living creatures. Orcs, primarily. Dragons, also. He just makes these things... Um, uh, he just makes these things from scratch. Um, uh, <laughs> so, shouldn't have mentioned spices. Never mind, never mind. Um, in these original stories... He makes these things from scratch. Now, it's clear, again, it's very clear from internal evidence in his stories that Tolkien eventually decided that theologically this was not acceptable. Um, that nothing that has life or the semblance of life could the enemy ever make. Um, he cannot make new things. He can only t corrupt them, right? He can only twist them. Um, that's what Frodo tells to Sam, right? Remember when Sam is wondering if the orcs just live on, you know, uh, poison, right? Uh, you know, do they, do orcs eat and drink? He asks. You know, he's basically like, are they what are they like made of stone and hatred or something, right? And Frodo says, no, 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 they eat and drink. Remember this passage? They eat and drink, right? 
because this is the enemy does not have the power to make real new things. Um, he can only he can only twist them. He can only he can only he, he can only mock. He can't make. Um, so yeah, so Gwendolyn, no, he doesn't make the well. He made. Did he make the bats originally? I'm not sure. I mean, like the werewolves and stuff. Yeah, but um, but anyway, I get in these everything we've read so far in the history of Middle Earth series. Tolkien seems fine with the simple manufacturing of life. He he Morgoth makes the orcs out of stone and hatred, and then they're living and they think independently and they reproduce and they're fine. Right. Later on, he decides, okay, no, theologically, that's not going to work. Right. Theologically, um, life can only come, you know, this this uh, this real creation of life only comes from Iluvatar. Um, the evil cannot create; it can only corrupt. Important theological principle, and he applies it consistently throughout. Again, we see it come into the Silmarillion in the story of Aule, Right, the dwarves are just going to be like automata, and you know, if your if your mind is elsewhere, they're going to stand idle. Right, that's what it would look like if somebody other than a Luvatar tried to make something. Right, that's what the orcs would do, but that's not what the orcs are like. They think independently; they can't be like that. Therefore, okay. So having decided that. What are your options then? Okay, so if the orcs aren't manufactured out of stone, then they have to be... They can't be made. They have to be twisted, right? They have to be corrupted. Um, exactly, Brian. Did you say he doesn't need to create werewolves? He just, uh, you know, takes... <laughs> crosses wolves and men. No! Uh, but yeah, no, he just he just, he just just corrupts wolves, right? Take, take, take wolves, combine them with evil spirits, right? Put evil spirits inside them and make them meaner and... And smarter, and okay, there you go, right? You've got, you've got, you've got werewolves. But again, he's not made anything. He just took a perfectly good wolf, right, and he's uh, repurposed it, right? Um, okay, so that then becomes the model for orcs. Orcs were just children of Iluvatar, which Morgoth sinisterly repurposes, right? But, but, um, that's. That, of course, creates... That, that opens up the next theological problem, which is the problem of free will, right? If they're children, like, what happens to their souls? Is it possible that... Wouldn't they be redeemable, at least in theory, right? I mean, if they, uh, is it possible that their souls could be corrupted to the point where they literally absolutely cannot do right? That, um, that you know, they are, in fact, totally and utterly depraved? Um... That's um, and remember, as a as a Catholic, not uh, not a Lutheran, not a Calvinist, that would be an uncomfortable thought for Tolkien. Theologically, you would not believe, you would not accept the concept of total depravity. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, yeah. Um, and this, of course, is the problem that he never fully solves in his lifetime. Right, so it was down to us to solve it last week in Silmarillion Film Project, um, but uh, but I guess so. Just I wanted to I wanted to bring this up because again I couldn't remember how much I talked about this here, and I want to I want to kind of clarify. Um, so you know, like Yana, you were bringing up here in your notes um, the uh, the irredeemability thing. Notice the irredeemability thing is not an issue here, right? If they're just made out of rocks, they don't have to be redeemable, right? They're disposable at that point. You just you know you just throw them away afterwards. It's fine, right? Because they don't have souls, 
they're just animated rock. Um, so yeah, no issues, no question of redemption, and it's a little more convenient, right? I mean, you can kill them with impunity. You can you can speak of them as if they're simply vermin, worse than vermin, right? I mean, rats at least are, you know, creatures of Iluvatar too. No, orcs are just you know nastiness personified, right? So question of redemption, question of free will, not even at, not even on the radar screen at this point, right? That is a problem that is generated when Tolkien shifts his concept. Um, so anyway, um, and again, he he never seems to. Uh, and as I said, he has not really fully talked about this. But don't worry. If we persevere in our reading of the History of Middle-earth series, we'll get to this in Volume 10, and uh, so, you know, in another few years, we'll have a very full discussion of this when we read Morgoth's Ring. So, uh, 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 as, uh, as the King and the Princess Bride says, won't that be nice? Um, all right, uh, another thing that, again, I just wanted to make sure something I've been talking about in multiple contexts I wanted to make sure to kind of clarify here. Kimber says, in the War of Wrath, the sons of God wrestled with Morgoth. Who is this talking about? Where does this fit among Tolkien's changing ideas about the gods having children? And are those children also gods, or the elves, men, dwarves? Yes, they're also gods. These are the Maiar. Um, Yes, this was um, at the time, and by the way, this is one of those moments where Christopher briefly does do interpretation. Um, he sort of, I don't know, it's not indulges himself, perhaps let slip would be a better verb, um, a little interpretation in his commentary at this place. Um, I, I remember it because it jumped out at me for that reason. Um, when Christopher said that at this point in time, like that is in the 30s, Tolkien was still in the place where he was very much trying to emphasize I don't know if you can hear the squeaks that are coming. My dog is dreaming over on the couch over there. It's adorable. Anyway, um, so um, the, Christopher says this is this is this is the time when um, uh, you know at this point in time, Tolkien was still trying to emphasize the the fecundity of the gods, their their ability to reproduce, and and he uh, um, he 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 uh, um, talks a lot about their uh, their 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 reproduction, um, and their kids. Um, and they seem to have a lot of kids. So, um, so yes, yeah, yeah, they're, 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 they're reproducing and their kids are given really prominent roles. And this is the biggest one, Kimber, where the War of Wrath is like delegated to the next generation, right? Um, Fionwe and, uh, and the others, you know, the, it's a, it's a, it's a youth movement, in Valinor, right? Um, but, so, I mean, you know, where, so it's definitely, these are definitely not children of Luvatar. These are definitely gods. Again, we would call them Maiar in the in the later, uh, you know, using the later terminology. Um, so where does this fit? Um, it fits, uh, well, I have to admit, Kimber, I'm not sure how to fit this into the big picture here because I'm not quite sure what it means. This is something that I'll be interested to keep an eye on as we go through. 
um, you know, we continue to future books here, I, um, I'd be interested to keep an eye on this trend and see when it goes and what happens, how it, when it goes and how it goes. Because again, what is not really clear to me is what is the purpose of having the Valar reproduce and having the story shift to their children in these ways. Um, are we to understand that, okay, so big gods give birth to littler gods? That's kind of how it seems to work. Or maybe that's me reading, reading it through the lens of the published Silmarillion, where those characters who were the, the children of the gods tend to be the Meyer, the lesser uh, spirits. Maybe that wasn't the original conception, though. Maybe gods give birth to greater gods. Maybe they're meant to be the heirs of the world and take over something, supplement. I don't know. I don't really understand it. Um, I wish I did have a clearer view of it. Um, is this a t- so? Are they lesser? And thus, this is a testimony to how Morgoth has come down in the world, right? Um, you know, Tolkien and Manway took him out the first time. Their kids take him out the second time, right? He's he's taken down by the second generation and the lesser by far generation. I could see that, but I'm not necessarily convinced that that is the only way to read it. Um, um, I don't know. You know, Josh says maybe that's how the gods were supposed to infuse the earth with their power unlike how Morgoth did it, right? Morgoth dispersing his power among all of his slaves, right? Dispersing his, 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 you know, his, his own self, his own will among his slaves. Maybe the, uh, the, the offspring, the generation of the Valar is a positive model contrasted with that. That's interesting, Josh. I mean, I think that could kind of, I think that could kind of work. Um, Yana says, could it be that when they're called the children, it's metaphorical, like the Valar being brothers and sisters in the eyes of Eru? Kind of, though. Yana, even the brothers and sisters thing seems to be less metaphorical here. Um, I mean, they seem to be like, Nyana's really the sister. Again, Melko, again, in in the published Silmarillion, it says that Melko and Manwe were like brothers in the thought of Iluvatar, right? And in the context of the published Silmarillion, that seems to suggest merely like that the word brother is, is metaphorical, right? It just means they're peers. They were, you know, roughly equal. Um, that's, it's not a metaphor. It doesn't seem to be a metaphor. That doesn't mean there can't be anything metaphorical in it or anything figurative in it. Um, it could still theoretically be figurative in some sense. Um, but, um, uh, but it's not just figurative. It's much more literal. They actually have something... Like there's a relationship between Manway and Melkor and Nienna which is different than their relationship with the other Valar because they're siblings. What does that even mean? I don't even really know. I don't get it. I don't fully understand. Um, but yeah, they have... Um, um, Yeah, I don't know. See, Yana, exactly, that's what I don't get. Yana says, how can you be a sister without parents, though? Uh, and if Eru is the parent, then they're all siblings. Yeah, Yana, no, exactly. That's just it. I, that's what I don't get. Um, it's almost like... 
Okay. I'll tell you why I find it so confusing. Because in this manifestation, it's in what seems to me an awkward halfway point. Halfway between a pagan pantheon and the Christian great chain of being, right? Um, On the one hand, there is Eru, the one, right? And all things come from him. And the powers as delegated authorities of the world, so the powers as parallel to, you know, angels or more properly something like planetary intelligences or something like that, some something higher up in the angelic hierarchy than the mere angels who go around delivering the mail in the Bible. Um, uh, anyway, so it, it's kind of like that, but it's also kind of like the, the you know, something like the Greco-Roman mythology. Let me say, rather like the Greek mythology, forget the Romans. Um, uh, But like I say, this earlier version is like a halfway point. And Yana, exactly the question you're asking, you just asked there, is to me a big part of what makes this uncomfortable, makes it so hard for me to grasp. they're like a pagan pantheon in that they have siblings and kids and wives and husbands, right? Um, that's like a pagan pantheon. But they're all also offspring of the thought of Iluvatar, which is like the Christian system. But how can you have both, right? Like the the Greek stories, you know, the Greek stories about, you know, Uranus and Gaia and, and uh, you know, and the Titans and, um, you know, and, and uh, Cronus barfing up his children. Like, it's not that that story isn't messed up, but it's at least comprehensive. Like, it works, right? It might be inexplicable in some ways. It might seem odd. And there's still the question of where did the, you know, Uranus and Gaia come from, but nevertheless, we have, like, clear relations, right? Um, whereas we have that gap, there's that gulf between Eru and the Valar, which can't be bridged in that way. So, I, I, like I said, I just, I don't feel like I have a real intuitive understanding of how this is supposed to work, and what this is supposed, if it is metaphorical, what is it, uh, what does it represent exactly? Um, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, so so Kimber, thanks for bringing this up. I just wanted to clarify that I don't get this at all, even a little bit. Um, but, uh, well, okay. Sorry, so, yeah. yeah. Oh, good. Yana points out, he says, let's not forget that these early versions surely are not intended for publication, and Tolkien did change his mind on this stuff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, the fact that he later decided to push his pantheon and his mythology in a different direction is very clear. Why he changed it, or even back a step what exactly he was changing it from that's what I feel like I don't really understand 
maybe someday I'll understand it better. Maybe I'll have a better idea next time I read this stuff through. But as of now, that's still one of the things I have to admit I'm confused about myself. Um, Karita, you're going to love this. I don't know where this came from. Look at what Spellcheck did to your name on this last one. Crates? What the heck is that? I don't even... Anyway. No clue. Sorry. So, uh, Crates uh, asks another great question that I want to end with. Um, so here's our final question for the uh, for this uh, for this seminar. What is your favorite edit that Tolkien made to what we now know as the Silmarillion story? What is your least favorite? Do you miss anything from the Book of Lost Tales? Ah, uh, this is really hard. Whenever, um, whenever I ask my seven-year-old any question that begins, "What is your favorite?" It, can, it doesn't matter what it is. It can be anything. His answer is always, um, 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 and he'll do that indefinitely. I feel much the same way. Um, <laughs> but my favorite edit, that is, if we think about the story as we have it here at the end of The Shaping of Middle-Earth, by the end of The Shaping of Middle-Earth, compared to the published Silmarillion, what do we have in the published Silmarillion that we do not yet have in that story? What am I, you know, what sort of alteration am I still most looking forward to? I would say Bar and Dunweth, that is, uh, Amon Ruth, uh, Meme and his sons and the House of Ransom, that element of the Turin story, um, that's, uh, we still haven't had any of that yet. Um, uh, so that's what I love. It's one of my favorite elements of the Turin story. I, in my mind, I mean, guys, there's so much of the Turin story that is so powerful and so remarkable. I find the um, sort of moral complexity of that moment, Meme's relationship with Turin and his his bitterness and resentment, but grudging respect and and the sort of the conflict within him, um, I think that that's, uh, um, that's, it's just, it's, it's an element of the Turin story that I really, really love, and it's not yet come in. So, that's one of my favorite edits that is still to come, uh, one of the, one of my favorite editions that is still to come. Kate Neville mentions the extended story of Muriel and Finway, yeah. Uh, uh, Finway's marriages that that's not come out yet right um so yep yep that would be um um uh that would be that would be good um i still the meme story i miss a little bit more keenly but yeah 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 that's definitely that's definitely up there um what is my least favorite My least favorite, and actually, Carita, excuse me, Crates, this is new. Uh, um, this is new for me after this reading of um, of the um, of the of, of the of the Quinta. You know, just this this reading through of the book. The cutting out of those awesome poetic bits. Remember those, like the oh man, the description of the darkening of Valinor and the Quinta, and the choice to reduce that 
I had to cut out some of those details. I mean, I missed the poisoned lips of Ungoliant being set against the wound in the side of of uh, of, of of the tree. Oh man! And the description of the darkness. And remember the remember the fog uh, over the lake of Mithrim, right? Oh man! Um, love that stuff. Uh, I miss that. I miss that in the published Silmarillion. Um, I think it's. It's it's a little too compressed. It's a little more compressed than it has to be, I think. Um, you know, I, it's easy for me to say, in retrospect, right? In 1977, I'm sure it looked a lot different to the publishers and, and even perhaps to Christopher himself. Um, I doubt that, uh, you know, the folks at Allen and Unwin were thinking, someday people are going to be saying of the Silmarillion, I just wish it were longer, man. Um but I do. I'm sorry. I wish it. Uh, I, I wish it were longer. And yes, Josh, the published Silmarillion needs more poetry. It does need lots more poetry. It absolutely does. Um, so uh, no, I mean, I guess if I could say that's the thing that uh, you know, my least favorite thing is the fact that the epic poems were not finished. You know, okay, but that doesn't seem quite fair. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, and Josh, I agree. I, too, am eager for Numenor. Numenor, you know, uh, 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 coming in, it's, that's a big deal, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, in fact, perhaps that's such a big deal that I kind of overlooked it. But anyway, and uh, do I miss anything from the Book of Lost Tales? Yeah, I do. Um I agree with, uh, what was it, Nancy. Yeah, Nancy uh, Fosberg says she misses Ariel and Marilee Tarinke. I agree. I agree. I miss the opportunity of getting to pronounce the name Marilee Tarinke um, uh, often. But um, I do, I do, um, I do miss, um, I do miss Ariel. I do miss the frame story. But even more, I miss the, Atmosphere. I miss the flavor of the of the of the Book of Lost Tales of the of the um, especially of the frame narrative. The Book of Lost Tales has this really, to me, remarkable combination of fun. Not to say that I had fun reading it. I mean, I do, but that's not what I mean. Like the people in it. Are having fun. They laugh a lot, and they're kind of irreverent. Not that I think irreverence is intrinsically fun, but but again, it's it's the Silmarillion. The published Silmarillion is very solemn, right? I mean, can you imagine? There are very few passages in the public published Silmarillion that you can imagine um, uh, the narrator laughing when they say. Right? It's just that's not what the published Silmarillion is like. Um, in the Book of Lost Tales, they, 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 they are having fun in the Book of Lost Tales. <laughs> Both James and Josh at the same time said, uh, we need more tra la 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 uh, And Kate Neville was saying the same thing. Yeah, uh, uh, Tin Fang Warble should have been fa la 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 in Rivendell in The Hobbit. Yeah, absolutely. Kate, maybe Tin Fang Warble was there. Maybe that explains the whole follow the lolly thing anyway. I mean, anyone who would be like, what, 
Um, oh, the hoot. Oh, the hoot. My favorite opening line of any Tolkien poem ever. Oh, the hoot. Oh, the hoot. Oh, the hoot. How I chowy trillips on his flute. Um, anyway, anyway. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, um, so, yeah, I... I um, um, I I miss that. I mean, I miss Tin Fang Warble. I miss the 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 that. But but again, as I said, it was this fascinating combination. On the one hand, it's kind of lighter, and even more comical in that way. But it's also more archaic. The diction is more archaic and more grand. Even when they're laughing and speaking lightly, they don't do it in low language. The diction of the Book of Lost Tales is consistently higher more archaic and more obscure than the published Silmarillion. The Silmarillion is like, has like come halfway to meet the people, right? To, to, to meet us, you know, uh, uh, modern uh, peons who are reading it. Um, uh, it. The Book of Lost Tales is, is higher and yet lighter. And I, that combination, the, for me, those two things... Uh, those two things combine to um, um, uh, those two things combine to make a flavor of story which I find really really charming um, and the published Silmarillion is many things but winsome and charming it rarely is though winsome and charming the Book of Lost Tales is quite a lot. So that's the main thing that I miss from the Book of Lost Tales, and I know it's probably a different thing than what you were thinking of. Um, I mean, are there particular elements of the story that go away? I do miss... I mean, yeah, both Tom and Yana mentioned Tour and the Fall of Gondolin. Yeah, sure, absolutely. The the full description of the fight at Gondolin and the you know all the, the panoply of the different houses and you know, the uh, Ecthelion um, and Gothmog sinking down in the fountain and uh, uh, Ecthelion stabbing Gothmog with the, with his helmet. Good stuff. And yes, Yana, yes, Arthur, I miss Tevildo, Prince of Cats. I do. I do miss Tevildo, Prince of Cats. Um, but, um, so yeah, I mean, this... I, I, but again, it's less about details. I mean, there are elements like that, again, especially with the Gondolin story, where there are particular moments which are never fully retold again and don't make the published Silmarillion that I do miss. But, um, um, but it's, it's, uh, um, it's still, to me, it's more the overall flavor and atmosphere that I most miss, I think. Um, and it's, it's not that I, you know, it's not that I think, oh, Tolkien really made a mistake there. Uh, no, I mean, I think in in the end, I think the published Silmarillion is is better. I think it's it's I don't know a more fitting way to tell those stories. Um, but I still liked it before, and uh, and I do still sometimes miss it. So those are my answers as we look back from the end of Book Four. Thank you very much, everybody. Um, uh, by the way, I can give you a preview for Dracula, what you're reading, what you should start reading. Start reading at chapter one. Um, I'm, 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 okay, I'm joking. I'm not joking. You should start reading at chapter one. Um, I will say, 
if we get through more than the first four chapters, the first four chapters are the story of Jonathan Harker in Transylvania. If we get through more than the first four chapters in the first class, I'm going to be fairly surprised. Uh, so definitely start off reading those first four chapters. So Dracula next. Thank you guys so much for all of your contributions. You have made this, uh, you know, this seminar on uh, the shaping of Middle Earth just a wonderful experience for me. I'm very grateful for that. Um, I look forward to talking about Dracula with you. I'm super excited about that, and um, I'm, uh, uh, and 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 then we'll see. Who knows? Maybe we will come back and do the Lost Road together, and uh, and we'll finally get uh, get Josh to Numenor. So that'll be fun. Thanks, everybody. Have a good evening, and I will see you guys in two weeks for Dracula class number one. Thanks. Bye now.